added time is supported by Fitbit. Get real-time insights on you and your world with the Fitbit Versa 2, the all-new premium smartwatch with Amazon Alexa built in, your personalised sleep score and a 5-plus day battery life. It is the 100th episode of the Added Time podcast, Pat. Oh, look, there's balloons falling from the ceiling. Yes. Uh, we made such a special effort for it. Uh, both of us have turned up. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Uh, which neither of us did for the 99th episode. No. Last Thursday. Uh, and uh, in many ways, that was um, that was probably the reason Ireland got the shit hammered out on, on Saturday. Do you think, yeah? I think so. I think, I think uh, they knew that our heads weren't really in the game. It's we as good were. an explanation as any I've heard. Well, you know, because I haven't heard any decent ones. No. Uh, yes, it's sad, sad weekend where we um, were cruelly reminded of our place in the world, and that's that. Yeah. Essentially, <laughs> rugby's over. Rugby's over. What's next? Yeah. <laughs> Tell you what's next. A little bit. What's next? Uh, we are coming into the run up to Christmas, and the sports books are all starting to file themselves out. So we're going to have Adrian Russell in later on to talk about his book about uh, Cork winning the All-Ireland Double in 1990, which is a very good book. Um, over the weekend, Pat, there was a special congress in the GAA. These are not the times to be talking about GAA, but but somehow it wedges itself in. Mm. Um, and they so the big headline from it was that they brought in the tiered championship for next year. Um, which is fine, and it 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 may or may not work. I wouldn't be overly in favour of it. It has turned it's a reheat of the Tommy Murphy Cup, which was a disaster. Yeah. Um, but we will see how it works itself out. But I thought what was nearly more interesting and got far less um, play were the rules that they voted through. Yeah, and it was also interesting how strongly the rules got yeah. voted through, given that a lot of people don't have much confidence in them. The advanced kickout which uh, all kickouts to be taken from the 20 metre line. I think we're all okay with that one. Yes. Voted through at 83%. Yes. The sin bin, which is mm. a 10 minute sin binning for any player who commits a black card foul, voted through at 73.8%. Yeah. And by the way, just in case any people are listening and thinking, oh, is this just for the league? No. This is for the championship next year. Yeah. This, this is where these leagues are. You're not a fan of the sin bin. I think it's terrible. I think it's, I, th- I, I mean, I, I, I'm the last holdout who is who uh, likes what what the black card has done for Gaelic football? I think it has done fantastic things. It works as a deterrent. It has totally changed the flow of the game. I know absolutely players have got sent uh, lo- sent off for the rest of the game and sometimes haven't deserved it. But tough shit. That's life. The whole thing is to create a better game, a more free flowing game. And I think Sinbin is a complete retrograde step. I like. The little bits of criticism I've heard of this over the last couple of days have been all about how teams are going to waste so much time, which is absolutely true. It's genuinely true. I saw it in the league last year. You you know, they may reduce the playing time of those 10 minutes to about four minutes with players going down injured and all that sort of stuff. And that's fine. But even beyond that, there's a bigger philosophical thing that I genuinely believe that this will reintroduce uh, way more cynical play mm. like the deterrent of missing out on the rest of the game is now gone yeah you'll be back on after missing maybe four minutes of action nobody they won't give a second thought to to hauling people down the, which is which had gone from the game mm. the third man tackle had more or less gone from the game and I guarantee over the course of next year's championship all of that will find its way back in it's idiotic and yet it sailed through. The other sailed one that um, that sailed through, the attacking mark, this one passed with 68.9% mm. of the vote, which, for anybody wondering, we, obviously the um, the kick-out mark remains, mm. but it allows a player to catch the ball cleanly or inside, catch the ball cleanly on or inside the 45-metre line from a kick in play that has travelled at least 20 metres without touching the ground. I tell you, the thing that really bugs me about this is, I wonder has anybody as I happen to have done recently, sat down and watched a game of AFL. Mm, it's crap. It's shocking. <laughs> it's not a fun sport. It's a shite sport. <laughs> and watch. it would not hold your attention at all. <laughs> so stop start. And 
I, I can't understand how this has walked through with people going, oh yeah, the mark, that's great. Do you know what it is? It, it is a, a reflection of how glacially things move in the GA. This is a reaction to the game as it was 18 months ago, two years ago, mm. when it was all packed defences and when forwards uh, had no space in which to, to do anything. Last, the football championship that has just gone has naturally evolved a few steps beyond that. Yeah, teams are trying to... The, the blanket defence has gradually been figured out and people are phasing People have realised that blanket defences do not win championships. They do not win provincial championships. They are, have, they are of no use to you once you get to Croke Park. Mm. You need to develop games where you keep three forwards up, where they can win the ball out in front of their, their men. Uh, beyond that... The biggest tactical innovation this year has been the all-out press uh, on the opposition kickout, which automatically has created more space back there. You do not need attacking marks anymore. No, it's nonsense. It is. It's such nonsense, and it is going to. It it is genuinely going to make these games. It it changes the nature of these games. And you know what is what is interesting? Like people, it comes from. So much giving out about Gaelic football. Gaelic football is the most widely played team sport in the country. Mm. We need to be an awful lot more careful with it. You know, every county, Barkilkenny, has a vibrant Gaelic football championship. It has, you know, it doesn't, not every county has a vibrant hurling championship. Not every county has a vibrant rugby presence or soccer presence. But in every county you go to in Ireland, there is a rump of people who care deeply about their Gaelic football team. If you keep tinkering around with it because people have decided, oh, sure, I don't like blanket defences or I don't like this or I don't like that, you've got to be way more careful with this sport yeah. than we are. Anyway, rant over. Uh, <laughs> as I say, later on, we will have um, Adrian Russell in to talk about uh, his book on the Cork Double. But first, let's go to Japan uh, for... Well, for somewhere close to the last time, at least with uh, at least with Gavin, it'll be the last time. Gavin Comiskey and Jerry Thornley are still over there. How are you doing, lads? Super. <laughs> Relatively speaking, <laughs> we can avoid this no longer, I guess. Um, Jerry, I'll start with you. <laughs> like, what's left to be said? It's 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 sort of thirty six hours on, uh, almost forty eight hours on. Um, it. It was an, in many ways, it's an old failing. You know, we didn't get past the quarterfinal again. And yet, I don't think anybody really saw it being this level of underperformance. No, no, I don't think, well, very few did, certainly. Um, an awful lot of people expected a very big performance from this Irish team, based admittedly more on 2018 performance levels than on 2019 performance levels. I've learned one big lesson from this is that, you know, you've got to trust form. Um, I know the French can certainly pull rabbits out of the hat and occasionally Irish teams have done the past, you know, an inferior Irish side such as the one in 1991 very nearly toppled the eventual winners um Australia. If only they had. We might we wouldn't have this monkey on our back ever since. And I think it was partly the big long build-up to this game, partly the lack of form, the inconsistency, um, a myriad of other factors that uh, they just... Error compounded error, and and meanwhile they were coming up against an all black side that Sean Fitzpatrick said was produced their best performance in four years. They were almost error free in that first half, apart from Moonga putting one penalty into the in goal area when he was going for the touchline. Their pa- their handling and lines of running and tip on passes and the, just the timing of the runs onto those tip on passes was just extraordinary. They never their handling was brilliant. Never looked like making a mistake. Whereas Ireland made seven handling errors in that first half, and they were. Nearly every mistake was punished, um, whether it was Johnny Saxon going for the corner and M- Richie Moonga athletically keeping in play at 10-0. So I'm afraid, like, you know, it was they were already in big trouble at 10-0. They needed to get an opportunity or score to get back into the game. And then the second try by Aaron Smith, um, after falling on from that missed line from, from the, the mistake at the, at the line from Ty Furlong, defensive mistake from Jacob Stockdale, and then typical of the first half. I actually, if you look back in it, there's... Actually, times when there's really good shape on Ireland's attack. And, uh, you know, in one spell at, at, at 3-0 down, 
they actually create a hole for Rory Best to go through. And just the way he's tackled by Aaron Smith, he can't slip the ball to Keith Earls on his right or he's through. Um, moments later in the same attack, um, uh, Best moves the ball back to Sexton who hit Keith Earls. He's playing that outside centre. He gets the ball away. Larmer's screaming for the touchline. He does and he gets hit by Goodhue and Ireland very nearly conceded try and would have done but for Larmer recovering back. And this kind of just set the tone. And then it was arguably their best move of the match at 17-0 down. Really nice hit up for, off a line out. Then uh, I think it's uh, Gary Ringrose does a great line off the ball. Murray hits Sexton behind Ringrose with a really good long pass. And there's space on the outside for Stockdale. There's a two and one on the outside. Unfortunately, Rob Carney just completely crowds, his line completely crowds Johnny Sexton. Um, Silver Reese goes in with a tackle. Barrett scores 22 0 instead of possibly 17 7. Game certainly over. And um, it's just a horror show. Everything that could go around did go wrong. Gavin, a lot of the criticism that's aimed at Ireland over the last while has commented on that they were over anxious and they snatched the chances and that. Basically, we were dreadful at the things that we're usually good at and that we consider strengths. Given that, w- would you would you classify this as more of a mental collapse as anything else? Um, it was certainly a mental collapse, but it was a physical collapse as well. Um, just from listening to Joe Schmidt this year, it feels now in it feels now that he knew. Like after the England game, he called. He said they were only humans, and then on the weekend, he said the same phrase again, as if he could he could see the dip happening and there was nothing he could do um, that's got something to do with the fact that he said he announced he was leaving yet the contrast is quite remarkable because Steve, everyone knew Steve Hansen was leaving as well and yet he did in stark contrast he he turned around like basically what as well is England and New Zealand launched um, miserable seasons off the back of beating Ireland they reacted they used Ireland as a the defeats to Ireland, they used them as the, the springboard to, to go to the other level that we're watching now, the two best teams in the world. Uh, um, Rory Best talks about the genetic freaks and he's been, he's this been going on about a lot and look, it turns out it's it's true, it's a reality. Like if we're still going to, if we, if Irish rugby keeps relying on Black Rock and St. Michael's to be the bulk suppliers of the squad, elite nations are just going to keep wiping us off the floor. Like the CJ standard, Bundy Aki, Outlet that ends now with Keenan Knox, the big young monster prop from South Africa, because the five-year outlet now is just going to take away the foreign, the genetic freaks that Ireland have been searching for from abroad. So yeah, it's mental, but I think it's more, it's, it's as much physical. The mental side of it, though, like you can talk about needing bigger bodies and all of that sort of stuff, but the the really galling thing on Saturday was the amount of. Stupid mistakes, like silly, unforced errors. Now, and am I looking at that wrong? Am I looking at that 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 they are forced? They were forced into that because of physical disadvantages. No, Mal. No, um, Johnny Sexton. Nobody did like him missing touch. Mm. It was an ac- acrobatic piece of work by Moonga, but Sexton missing work, uh, missing that touch at such a vital moment at ten nil is inexcusable. Rob Carney, after all his experience running that line totally inexcusable um, like there's no way around these things the senior players besides Peter O'Mahony who deserves an enormous amount of credit um, granted he gave away that penalty on the line which as soon as they went to the TMO he was always going to be in trouble but a little bit harsh I thought but besides Peter O'Mahony the senior players did not show up now Schmidt knew not to um, Schmidt had a decision like do I go with Larmer over Carney do I go with young guys and he didn't make that decision he decided to trust with the players who had not had not shown up for him in 2019, but had shown up for him in 2018. I think Schmidt knew it was fading. I think he was aware of it the whole time. He was throwing out warning signs all that in the lead up to the game. And when you look back and listen to what he was saying, um, there was a deep foreboding in everything he was talking about. The only thing about that, Gavin, is that, like, yes, Larmer, I argued for Larmer, do you remember last week? You argued for Carney. You could understand why they went for Carney. He scored three tries in three successive games. He's looking physically sure. prime Nick. Yeah, um, okay, you could argue in hindsight, certainly, but we didn't last week. Andrew Conway in on form ahead of Jacob Stocktail, who had a particularly bad day at the office. I mean, that foot and touch when it would have been a line-out back in, uh, for Ireland back in the New Zealand 22 at the start of the game. Okay, game's probably over that, sorry, second half. Game's probably over that stage anyway, but like he was so at fault for the Aaron Smith second try. Um, he was badly at fault for the last try, not that it mattered a whole bunch at that stage, but like... Look at the, there weren't a huge amount of alternatives. Like you could argue in hindsight, Farrell, as John O'Sullivan did, instead of Henshaw. But, you know, Bundyaki was a big loss, no doubt about it. 
Um, like you couldn't really argue for Carby based on form and how he played so little rugby ahead of Sexton or Luke McGrath ahead of Conor Murray. And the back row resources were very diminished by Dan Levy and Sean O'Brien not be there and Jack Conan going back home. You could have argued maybe for Reese Ruddock, but as you said yourself, correctly so, I think Peter Armani was probably our standout performer. Certainly those two really big moments to drag Ireland back into the game. And the tight five pretty much picked itself. So, like, I, think of the players who didn't make the squad. There wasn't, apart from Devon Toner, and I really don't think Devon Toner would have made much of a difference on Saturday. You could maybe make a case for two or three changes in hindsight, but it wouldn't have made a blind bit of difference. It was just rearranging no. ships on the, on the Titanic. No, I think the greatest Irish team of all time wouldn't have uh, lived with that New Zealand team. But we believed no. them, Jerry. We, we believed them last yeah. week. We believed them after Shizuoka when um, they said... That's okay. That was a wobble. We're getting there. We believed them when they said in Cardiff on Paddy's weekend, oh no, that was the weather. It's okay. We're going to be fine. We believed them after they got smashed by England in February. And we kept believing in the team because they'd done so much and was such a great coach. And it turns out that they just weren't there. They weren't there. And it, the World Cup wasn't lost on the weekend. The World Cup was lost in Japan, the second half against Japan, when they couldn't. They wilted in the, in the conditions. Um, but it wasn't just the conditions. They should have, like South Africa showed last night, we went, we went back to Tokyo Stadium and South Africa showed exactly how you deal with the Japan team. You grind them down, you play test rugby, knockout rugby, all the things that the Irish team were supposed to know how to do. Um, Jerry, on that, uh, we've heard a lot over the last day or so uh, with people saying that the rugby team actually get off lightly and that they they don't get the criticism that other international teams would get, that pundits kind of tend to pull their punches a little bit with them for fear of damaging the brand. I, I was even struck watching on RT the, on Saturday. All the panel pretty much predicted an Ireland win, aside from Eddie O'Sullivan, who slightly kind of hedged his bets a little bit. And then after the game... The, it, there was allowances being made saying, oh, well, how did we, we couldn't really expect to beat one of the greatest teams of all time, which the All Blacks had suddenly become. What, what do you think? Do, do the Irish team get, do they get criticised a fair amount or too much, too little? Jeepers, from what I gather out here, I'm, I'm not reading everything and I'm also, I'm not, I don't get RT out here, so I don't know who was on the panel, even apart from Eddie O'Sullivan. I don't know what they said. Um, I watch the, I, I've got the access to the ITV coverage out here so I can watch their coverage. I thought um, Brian O'Driscoll and Paul O'Connell and Sean Fitzpatrick were pretty balanced. I mean, like I said earlier, Fitzpatrick said it was the All Blacks' best performance in four years. Um, I think it's a good team playing badly and that's what it is. It's a good team playing badly. It just, I think it's very hard when you hit the highs they hit in 2018 to really maintain them. Maybe harder for an Irish team because it's the highest any Irish team have ever gone. Like, Gad's right. What, they, what Ireland achieved in 2018 has, has been unprecedented. They, they have given... They, what the problem was they, they, they created so much expectation for this World Cup so that this failure, and by David Nusifor's own words of the last January, it is a failure because they didn't make the semi-finals. Um, that, so be it. It's a World Cup failure. And I think that's, that's the way we should look at it. It's been a, a bad year, an anticlimactic year, and a failed anticlimactic and chastening World Cup. And that's what it is. But it still, it still was a team and it still was an era that gave Irish rugby supporters and, you know, a, a huge sense of hope and in general belief. And that's what makes the World Cup so much more disappointing. Like, what more are you meant to say than that? It, it, however angry and upset people are back home about how badly the team has played, you can imagine the people who feel it the worst are the players themselves. Like, there's nine thirty-somethings in that squad. Rory Best and Johnny Sexton and Keen Healy and others, maybe even Conor Murray at 30, Peter Armani at 30. They're never going to get this chance again. So however much it hurts us, it's it, it, damn sure it hurts them even more. And I think, as Joe Schmidt admitted afterwards, he's a, he's a broken man. So, like, I don't know. Yeah, they made mistakes. Maybe the game could have evolved a bit better, for sure. They certainly peaked a year too early. Um, and that's life this is sports it doesn't always work out the way you want I do think that one of the more revealing things afterwards was on foot of what Nusifor said last January I thought it was revealing that uh, that Joe Schmidt said afterwards that you know maybe this this consumed us too much and we lost our game to game focus and it's something that Rory Best said as well that you know starting with that Six Nations opening game against England let's make try Rory, Robbie Henshaw full back with the view to the World Cup and so forth and so on so you're kind of down and you do, down and you don't. But they lost their focus in trying to evolve their game and didn't succeed in doing either, really. They lost their form, didn't really evolve their game. And uh, so it's come to this. But I still think that that was the toughest quarterfinal that any Irish team will ever have faced. 
And I still, I'm telling you, I've been to a lot of World Cups and trust me, 2003, 2007 were even worse than this. And 2011, 2015 were just as disappointing in the end. Um, it's a road well travelled, unfortunately. World Cups haven't been good. No, Pat, you're right. Pat, you're right, though, Pat. Um, they do get an, they have got an easy ride. Like, I remember, um, I think myself and Jerry were just doing our jobs and we were being quite critical of them, and especially in the wake of the Six Nations, especially in the wake of um, the Japan game. And the backlash to negativity was overwhelming. I couldn't believe it. People were getting, people were taking it personally, like almost when you're just reporting what is like right in front of your eyes. Um, what we saw was we were watching them. They were like, as the New Zealand media described them, they were like cart horses. Um, and up against up against this this New Zealand team, yeah, sure. But I don't think it would have made a difference if it was South Africa. That's the, the, that is the interesting thing because you, you even mentioned it there earlier, Gav about how this the, the World Cup was lost in the second half against Japan. Um are 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 we do we think that that had they seen out the game against Japan or had they won the game against Japan that that their fate would have been any different, you know, could they in this form could they have beaten that South Africa team? I think they would have stayed just from being at the game last night and watching how Japan stayed with um, the genetic freaks that Rory Best talks about. Um, and they stayed with them for about 40, 50 minutes. I think in our, Ireland in the same form, with the, getting in the right frame of mind, might have got to the hour mark before the South Africans' bench would have come on and just ground them into the dirt. Um, like Japan couldn't land a blow. Um, I don't see how... Um, I think we would have, but it would have been the same result. Um Irish rugby has to go down deep now and look inside itself and see what they want to do in the next four or eight years. There is work. you got to spread the playing pool. That just has to be done now. It's just so obvious. It's so apparent. And it is It is happening. There is people like Trevor Hogan going out amongst the, in the non-traditional places in Leinster rugby and all that. But um, it really, really, really needs to be reassessed now because um, the boys' club hasn't worked out. Jerry, uh... It's kind of up to the provinces. It's got, on that theme, it's kind of up to the provinces as well. Like, um, Leinster have got to go out and, se- and set up um, really excellent facilities and kind of rugby centres of excellence dotted around the whole province of Leinster to find more Sean O'Brien's and more Tyke Furlong's because with Shawnee gone now, I think Tyke Furlong is effectively the only one who's come through the youth uh, club stroke youth system as opposed to the school system. And there's got to be many more out there. Um, but it's kind of down to the province as well in this regard. Um and as for the, but that's not going to yield a big dividend in four years' time. So in 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 this next World Cup cycle, we're going Irish rugby and the problems are going to be going back to the same sources. And you would you would worry how long, how much longer St Michael's and Blackrock and the other Leinster schools, but particularly those two, can go on um, providing such a conveyor belt of ready-made talent like James Ryan. But um, oh, they it needs a bit of a rebuild as well under Andy Farrell too. They will keep supplying these players. Like if you look at the uh, what's coming through in Leinster at the moment, uh, and James Ryan came into the mix zone. He's twenty three years old, and they they rolled him into the mix zone. He was effectively the senior player speaking to writers after the game. Which read into that what you will, but he was like we, we you know we had to put him under under the grill a little bit, and he was like yeah look we do have the players coming through. There's some great players coming out of Michaels and Blackrock, Ryan Baird. You can go through this list, but that's just not going to be enough. You know, like we saw like the likes of Ryan and Ringrose showed up. But they're up against the likes of Jack 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 Goodhue and Brody Utalik and Sam Whitelock. Um, the this they will keep like there's a huge James Ryan's team. Like he was asked about it, he goes, "We we will. We're we're better in better shape than other Irish teams in the in the sense that like when O'Driscoll and O'Connell failed in their in the 2003 World Cup, they still had no medals. Like this young group has European medals. They've they've won Six Nations. They've beaten New Zealand. Like there is a, a slight step forward, but the problem is the other major rugby nations are just taking leaps forward and bounds forward. Like come the next World Cup, I, I guarantee you France will have their act together, and I guarantee you they'll have a coach that could be familiar to us, but it could be a very, they'll have their, their shop in order because they'll, and they have two under 20 winning World Cup teams. England and New Zealand are going to peak in four years. This, these two current New Zealand and England teams will be only at their best, at the, in their primes in four years' time. I could go through it. It's a national sport in Wales. Um, Japan are going to, are going to maintain a good, they're, they're on our heels, on Ireland's heels now. Um, I don't see how we break into the top four unless um, it won't happen in four years' time. Um, we'll win Six Nations. The thing is, like Ireland can't literally cannot focus primarily on a World Cup because they have to pack the Aviva because that's what pays the bills. So they have to make the Six Nations a priority every single year. So there isn't this great long-term plan. There's a 
there's a if the, if the Aviva Stadium if they're not winning the Six Nations if they're not packing the stadium, Ireland Irish rugby stagnates. So, a bit of a catch twenty two. Jerry, um, yeah, but Gav, no no country in the world can just focus on World Cups. Like you know, the All Blacks can take a take a little bit of a step backwards in the last one in the fourth one of a four year cycle. But I guarantee you, they'll probably still go and win the next three rugby championships as they did in the last World Cup cycle and the one before. And England will always be pushing for Six Nations titles as well. Wales need to fill out the Millennium Stadium every bit as much as Ireland need out to fill out the Aviva. Yes, they're more of a rugby nation than Ireland is, where rugby is the fourth number one sport, fourth sport. But I tell you what, like the, the, the further Wales go in this World Cup under Warren Gatland, with fairly limited resources, let's be said, like players scoring tries and represent the Dragons that we'd be watching in the Pro 14 and sometime during the season, he's, he's, a, he's a World Cup semi-finalist or, or finalist or winner, whatever it turns out to be. Like... That's going to be a tough act to follow, Warren Gatland in Wales. So you, can, you can't say for certain how things are going to pan out in four years' time. Yes, it's, it, it, Ireland are always fighting against the odds. Like it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable for Ireland to win back-to-back Six Nations titles and a Grand Slam in a five-year period. That hasn't been done since the 40s. Jerry, Jerry uh, just to finish off, let's talk about uh, Joe Schmidt a bit. Um, what do you think has, has happened in the last year, uh, I, I got to say, I remember I wrote, wrote after the Six Nations that I got the sense that that this was a guy that was coming very close to be burnt out, being burnt out by the whole thing. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, his legacy will endure because of what he did, what he did with Leinster, what he did with Ireland. As you say, back-to-back Six Nations, Grand Slam, all of that hasn't been done in, in however, however long. But his, his last year, he has looked like a guy for whom possibly poured too much of himself into the job. Am I sort of, like, is that too much pop psychology? It could be. None of us know. Mm. All I do know is that um, he, his confidence perhaps took a joke during the Six Nations. Um, some of the wording he used, like I think he used the word broken as well a bit mm. after the England defeat. I think the, the, the Wales defeat in Cardiff, um, the insistence that the roof stayed open, everything about that day was was scarring as well. And then, of course, on the eve of this World Cup, um, in the, the eve of the World Cup warm-up matches, and the week before mm. the uh, Italian warm-up game, he lost his mother. His mm. mother passed away. Mm. And then you come into the stress of a World Cup that he himself had been building up to for the last four years. He is very, very demanding of everybody around him. There's no doubt about it. But you can be sure he's equally as demanding of himself. I don't know how much sleep he gets or doesn't get or how much rugby he watches, but I'd say it's more than anybody else we know. Um, and then you come to World Cup and all the pressure he's put on to succeed at that because basically the defeat to Argentina four years ago is probably the reason he's still at this World Cup. Mm. And I've always thought that the reason he wants to take a little bit of a step away from coaching, um, maybe for good, who knows, is, is not so much health, but just the pressures of it. Like, you know, Eric Elwood as well, a comment similar. Not everybody's cut out for this. He, Joe Schmidt is cut out for this in many, many ways. But I think by the end, he just looked very drained. I mean, it's partly the disappointment of their exit and everything else. But I hope the man gets a good break. I hope he gets a good holiday. I hope he's eating a bit more food because he looks very light in his feet. Mal, um, there, was a, there was a really... I was on the premise that Ireland were going to show up and produce this mm. historic performance. I was trying to watch every single and taking notes on every single moment in the lead up to the game. And obviously, uh, just before the warm up really kicked into gear and Schmidt took over, you could see him. He went over and he was talking to Steve Hansen and he was animated and he was chatting away. And they had this conversation. They know each other quite well and they're, you know, they're, they're friends at this stage because they're, they're in this elite little club. But um, after they finished talking, Schmidt went over to Nigel Owens and he had a two minute, 16 seconds conversation with the referee 10 minutes before kickoff. And it was animated and it was specific and you could see all this. And then he turned and ran and shooted off to do the warm up. And Steve Hansen walked over, cracked a joke with Nigel Owens and then just put his hands in his pocket and watched the warm up. <laughs> and, and the, the contrasting, <laughs> contrasting how you handle these high, high pressure situations mm. was stark. Um, Jerry's right on all counts there. Um, Schmidt's looked like he's aged. Um, it's no easy job, and Andy Farrell steps into it now, and it's going to be, um, and it's actually the same coaching ticket except for Mike Cat. So a lot of emphasis on Mike Cat to change up mm. that what this team is that we've been watching that that has so clearly just stood still for a year. Lads, we will uh, talk about the semi-finals on Thursday, uh, but thank you very much for your time, and uh, Gav, safe travels home.
Book season is kicking into gear, Pat. It is. All the sports books are starting to dribble in and dribble around. Uh, And we have an author in with us today. Uh, Adrian Russell is the editor of The 42, is that the best way to put it? Absolutely, I think, yes. Yes, And indeed, he, uh, far more interestingly, has written a book called The Double, uh, the story of one of the great GA stories when Cork won the Hurlingham Football Double in 1990. Adrian, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Uh, The book's great. It's so much, like, it appeals, of course, to people of our age. I was 12 in 1990. Yeah. You, you were more or less the same. Yeah. Uh, and I have a, have a memory, especially of the football team. Like, you'd have, Pat would have more of a memory of the, of the hurling team. Mm. Um, tell us about sort of the background of how it came to be. The book? Yeah. Or the double, the book. Um I suppose it was just one of these stories, you, as you described it, you know, one of the great stories. And it was always one of these, you know, pub chats, like, why has nobody ever done hmm. this book? And, you know, it was just an obvious one. And then, you know, you kind of kick it around and, um, you know, there's more obvious guys than me that could have, you know, taken this on. Like, obviously, great GA writers, for example. Hmm. Like, But I kind of say, look, I'll see if I can do it. And then you start ringing lads and people, you know, will meet you for coffee and you're up and running and then you start putting it together. And Problem is you have to do it then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, and I, I wasn't, I haven't said that I wasn't 100% sure there was a book in it necessarily. Like a, maybe there, you know, as you said, the football team, I think that that's a kind of a complete narrative and the cast of characters that you could almost get a book out of. But it was like, is the hurling, is it going to be an imbalanced kind of narrative or whatever? Um, but uh, once I got into it, it was like, oh, there's all the ingredients here, the canon, you know, uh, who Michael O'Brien, who was the, the priest who coached the, the hurlers that year. And then you have Billy Morgan, the kind of equally maniacal football manager, I suppose. And then great characters like Larry Tompkins, Tomas McCahey, John Fitzgibbon. And then as well as that, it's not just hopefully, uh, you know, <laughs> a Cork book like so they're you know they obviously interact with great mm. characters like Sir Farrell and th- that me team that um, they had a, the footballers had a great rivalry with and obviously Bob's in tape and you know so I was like it's all here if you can just pull it together so um, got up and running and people were happy to kind of chat to me I think In fairness though I think people often say that oh there was a great story there but I think somebody needs to find the story and I will say this though some of your your main characters if you had written them in fiction people would say that's a little bit unlikely like, um, yeah, I must say, it hadn't properly struck me. Now, I had heard the name Canon Michael O'Brien, and obviously I knew Billy Morgan, you know, from being around the sport. Um, it is, it's an almost ungodly coincidence, and that pun is, is that was completely <laughs> accidental, but it is a, a very weird coincidence that you have these two complete firebrands that, were, yeah. that were, were running the two teams at the time. Tell us about Canon O'Brien. So he, I suppose, was an old school priest, I would describe him. I, I went to school in St. Finbar's, Farnbar's, which would be one of the hurling nurseries now gone. Um, and he was a, a teacher there. So I kind of, you know, without inserting myself, I kind of remember him from my own childhood. And he was an old school priest, you know, kind of his his bark was worse than his bite, I think, mm-hmm. as Mark Foley says in the book, and I, I, I would agree with that. He, he was old school, like, and, um, but he just loved hurling, and he loved cork hurling, and he, he had an unbelievable record of winning with um, Farm Ferris, and then on to UCC, you know, 10 in a row, Fitzgibbons, or whatever it was, he took on Camogie teams, and, you know, they'd win Munsters, or took on the Navy team, you know, all this kind mm-hmm. of thing. Just loved putting a group of people together, and especially moulding, like, there's almost shorthand for, like, West Cork hurlers, so guys who wouldn't necessarily be hurlers, but he'd saw something in them and he'd like to kind of build on their character he got a great kick out of that I think you know there was a human side from him as well as being that kind of mm. cartoony old school uh, maniac I suppose um, and then he was involved with the 84 Cork curling team which won with Justin McCarthy he fell out with Justin McCarthy and then he was brought back in when Cork were a low ebb in 89 with Tip obviously when having their uh, dream time then that you know famine ended obviously 87 and Cork were down for a couple of years and then the cannon was brought back and yeah, he was just full of histrionics, I suppose, a lot of tricks. He'd walk out on training and, um, you know, kind of tears in the dressing type of theatrics or mm. whatever. And some guys bought into it. Some lads kind of rolled their eyes at it, I suppose. And um, I think John Constantine described it as a kind of Mourinho kind of trick almost. You know, if you, it worked when it worked and, you know, kind of when... The shelf life of it wouldn't have been that long. Exactly, yeah, when you stop believing, you know, the kind of magic ends, I suppose. Well, he's still, though, he had a staggering record in Fitzgibbons. He mm. won 10 Fitzgibbons mm. in a row. Mm-hmm. And 
like uniformly people seem to say he had no interest in tactics. So it, it was all about pushing people's buttons, which is yeah. a kind of a staggering way to approach putting a team together. I suppose it was more common for hurling back then. But his, yeah. his halftime speech in the All-Ireland final, tell people a little bit about that. Yeah, like a lot of it was, and I don't know if I succeeded, but it was kind of separating these myths and the after-dinner type stuff to the, actually what did happen. And the donkeys and derbies is another episode. Um, and then at uh, yeah, halftime, obviously they were down, well, they were down five points, I think, at the time against Galway. Um, and he gave them some raw words, was how he described it afterwards. So he kind of dragged three players into the, the shower area and threw buckets of water over them. He gave one a, a dig, uh, essentially like, you know, Brian Clough type clips around the air. Um, and in the meantime, I think there was some, you know, Joe Cunningham was getting the, the backs around him and having some tactical discussions <laughs> outside. Like, <laughs> Talking about her. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then they went back outside and he, you know, he had um, a cock jersey ball up in his hand, essentially cut down his hands and knees like kind of a Baptist preacher or something and kind of gather all the lads around him and he just started crying basically and said, you do it, do it for Cork. And just, it was that kind of base motivation I suppose like which would work with you know if it's good you can imagine kind of students buying into that type of thing and that's maybe the why his approach was so successful at colleges and third level um but it worked here as well I mean although like they went another two points down when they went back out it was seven points afterwards and I think then the tactics kicked in and um you know like the likes of John Fitzgibbon who's a big character in the book would have asked afterwards like who put the onion in the cannon's bag to make him cry and <laughs> you know th there was some lads kind of half laughing and joking and he, you know there was another you know he said like there's only three playing out there or whatever is and you know Kevin Hennessy asked who were the other two you know there's all these kind of <laughs> moments um, but, it, but it worked like and as well as that he had like people like Gerald McCarthy next to him who was that kind of um, you know tactical type of guy and the, the conduit maybe between him and the, the lads and there was people like Dr. Con Murphy who obviously is still there and Kit Cronin who kind of spanned the two dressing rooms as well and they were kind of very much the you know I think the his yang and the, the arm on the shoulder was um, but yeah like he was very important in setting the tone and re reminding uh, probably people would say that and this is you know potentially arrogant Cork attitude but that Cork team and any Cork team maybe needs to be reminded of the heritage and um Corkness. Yeah, just convinced, mm. you know, it's almost a con job, isn't it? Like, but like, just go out and do it and <laughs> things will come together. Um, but I think a lot of the players would say that there was some tactical innovation at halftime as well. Just for people um, who don't know, because it does stick in my mind, the donkeys and derbies that you referred to there. I, as a, I think, a 12-year-old mm. watching, I think I'm certain I watched Sports Stadium on the day that this happened. Yeah. And... I think it was my introduction to uh, fake news years before <laughs> Donald Trump ever came up with it. Because I remember seeing the interview and Babs Keating was asked about what a good coach... By Jerry Canning. By Jerry Canning, what mm. a good coach Father Michael O'Brien was. Mm. And uh, he said he's, he's a great coach, but, you know, donkeys don't win derbies. He's got great players as well. And the latter part of his sentiment got completely lost for just... Uh, and cleverly from O'Brien and for... It's now completely known as the, the Donkey Derby final yeah. or Donkeys Don't Win Derbies final because Babs allegedly called all the Cork players donkeys, even though these Cork players had won, or a good chunk of them, had yeah. won All-Ireland four years earlier. Yeah. They weren't a, donkeys at all. No, not at all. It was completely twisted. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like a lot of the players would say that he didn't use it. Um, the cannon I mean but like then another half of the players say they remember that card being twisted as they put it, as they went out the door and it was like... Uh, <laughs> Bob said this year, Mark Foley, same as you, he was sitting down in front of the, you know, he got 2-7 that day, he was sitting down watching Sports Stadium. Um, and he, at the time, he says, he remember, he kind of says, we're going to use that, like, because he knew the canon from Fernand from colleges and he knew this was something that he would use and kind of trade into his narrative when he's kind of, um, you know, I think they were having their puck around maybe beforehand, it wasn't necessarily in the dressing room. Um, but yeah, it was fake news, wasn't it? And like, Bob's, like it took him a long time to live it down in the eyes of Cork fans. Like this kind of it's in the book as well, Cork fans. Um like Bob's brought out for the, the Jubilee team, I suppose, in the day of the final, the all over final and people were braying at him and something, you know, <laughs> no you donkey and all the rest of it. Um but I mean obviously he got his revenge twelve months later, but uh, yeah, it was a uh, fake news is a good way of putting it actually. Um on the 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 other strand of the story is is the footballers and, and like you're 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 so right. I mean, there. If all the book was was Cork v Meath, 
yeah. and those four years, those five years, whenever it was. Like, he, like it's hilarious. You, you talk about the cannon putting the Cork jersey on the ground and him getting down on his knees. Like Billy Morgan after a league semi-final gets down on his knees yeah. and literally prays to God that we get Meath later in the year. Yeah, and it was Easter Sunday. It was, like. so vi- it was Easter Sunday, <laughs> yeah. It had, like, it had become so visceral. Yeah. Sort of out of nothing as well. Like yeah. it, it was. It wasn't as if there was a historic rivalry yeah. there. Like these were the two teams who had, who had been in the shadows of Kerry and Dublin for for decades. Yeah. And out of from a standing start, it was the the most visceral, mm. hatred laced rivalry in the GA. Yeah, it got really, really toxic and mm. silly as a word that players use now when they have that perspective. I suppose of of years, but yeah, it got like bananas. I mean, I think. A couple of the players would have made the point that it wouldn't necessarily happen, though, because players are like you know tweeting each other or on all star trips together or they're in the college together or whatever. Mm. But like as you said, these guys also the violence is not in the game. No, 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 <laughs> you no. <know>, you <laughs> having like, watched back the videos, like it was hilarious. I did read three or four times where they said, and there was a player knocked out off the ball. It always seemed to be Dave Barry. Yeah, seemed to be laid out off the ball, yeah. and you're kind of going. Okay, well, if that happened now, whoever it is gets six months and never does it again. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there was a feeling at the time you guys probably remember as well that it was kind of almost imported in from Australia with all these mm. compromise rules series that were happening at the time, which were pretty violent as well. Um, but yeah, like I suppose the like Cork got over Kerry in '87 mm. after the replay below Clarny, and then they faced this new monster that they hadn't encountered before, and. Um, they weren't ready in 87 really I think it's a consensus but in 88 they felt they were done out of one um, in the replay essentially and then from then on it's pretty toxic and there's a lot of tit for tat in newspapers something that wouldn't happen now either I suppose like like Liam Hayes talks to me and you know he had a, obviously he was a working journalist mm. um, people like uh, Colin Morocco I suppose him, like Dini Allen was well able to put forward mm. to Cork Cam's perspective in newspapers and stuff so it got kind of silly and then there was that I suppose no famous Grand Canaria episode where they're both in the same hotel on a team break and they're like, like one's in the shallow end and one camp is in the deep end and they're kind of looking at the ceiling when they're going up and down at the lifts and um, it's all very weird really and then um, 89 Cork win without meeting Mead and then there's more talk of a soft all Ireland from you know Mick O'Dwyer for one and people in Mead as well so it's kind of niggling and festering and then they meet in that Easter Sunday game, which is kind of off the charts as well. And um, yeah, I suppose Billy makes the promise that we'll never be kind of bullied again and whatever happens, um, they will not lose to this crowd. And they're, they are praying. Like, and it, it happens, as Larry Tompkins puts it, like the, the, the kind of stars align. And it kind of, I think, insulated them. Like the double, I remember as a you know, relatively small kid, the hype and the, mm. you can imagine that fortnight. But I think the, the footballers were just so insulated from all that because they just wanted to beat this kind of bait in the war at last in an all Ireland final. And, you know, sports, I suppose psychologists would call it like, you know, process type stuff. Mm. They just wanted to beat what was in front of them. Um, and then because of that, I suppose the double was achieved. Because that is the interesting thing that as you read through it. They are two distinct stories, even though there are characters in, in both dressing rooms. There's, there's, as you say, Kid Cronin mm. and... Uh, Dr. Khan and Frank Murphy, of course, is, is around there as well. Uh, and yet they are two distinct stories. Yeah. But yeah. of course, they, I, and I even remember as whatever whatever age I was, it was exactly 12 or whatever, 11 or 12, that, you know, Cork Hurling would never have really, or, or indeed any hurling, never really crossed the radar up where, up where I yeah. was, was growing up. And yet everybody knew the name Teddy McCarthy. Yeah. You know that was like like in the summer of Italia '90, in the the sporting year of Italia '90, he was still as big a like a, a name in the public consciousness because he did this amazing thing. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, and uh, I think he was a big name anyway. He, he had won all Ireland mm. in both codes already, but to to do obviously two in a fortnight is you know incredible. He wasn't. Um, present for the full summer you know he kind of dipped in and up because of injuries or whatever but he, he managed to you know really play essential roles in both finals like Dennis Walsh is the other one you would have to mention mm. um, you know he was on both pans for that period of time as well and then you know ultimately just didn't get a seat on the bench essentially for the football final so didn't get a medal which you know it's hard to take but he takes it very well now I suppose mm. with the perspective again of, of the few years um, 
But yeah, Teddy was huge. Um, There's actually a scene towards the end. I say scene because it, it almost struck me like something out of Field of Dreams. It felt vaguely unreal. I think it was after the football, must have been after the football final, that Teddy McCarthy came, kind of went away from the crowd as quick as he could and happened to be the first into the dressing room. And Jack Lynch... Yeah was in the dressing room. Jack Lynch, who won five All-Irelands in a row Six. in different codes. Six. Six. Yeah. yeah, five and one. And they literally met just the two of them in this empty yeah. dressing room. That it's it's uh, That's incredible. Yeah, myself, like isn't it? yeah, and Jack Lynch, you know, he's almost a character in the book as well, just just as a default. Like, I mean, he was such a huge character in Cork Chihay and uh, Teddy McCarthy remembers kind of, you know, hopping a ball off a wall, a gable wall, and... So, you know, Sarah's, you know, one of these old men in the club kind of says, uh, you know, Jack Lynch is in the parish. He's like, this guy is going to play for Cork. And then, you know, fast forward and he's kind of coming in, having achieved this historic thing that no one, even Jack Lynch has achieved. And he's, yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Like, and mm. it's, it, like Christy Ring as well is kind of, he comes through. He, at, at that stage, he wasn't, you know, he was probably 14 years or whatever, was 11 years dead. And he's still someone who was referred to like the likes of John Fitzgibbon and um, like the Kick Ronan had currency in the dressing because he knew Christy from, mm. from the Glen or whatever and you know so that kind of thread of without overplaying like the, the Cork heritage definitely kind of feeds into what was ultimately achieved in, in 90 I think mm. McCarthy is an, an interesting character of course uh, like I don't you didn't talk to him for the no. book he, he, now he's written his own book and, and I, I get the sense that he sort of sees that as his his last word on the matter, kind of thing. Yeah. Like he's and and he he became an like an interesting guy for for somebody who has done this singular thing, um, like you 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 couldn't really say that he's he's lived off it or anything no, like that. That's true. You know? Yeah, like uh, you know there was there's like I don't know thirty out of forty interviews, hmm. but Teddy is the one. And I knew that, like, <laughs> if I didn't get him, people are going to say, "Oh, you didn't get Teddy or whatever," which is fair enough. But. Um, Try different avenues. So yeah, he's not particularly interested in. I have a kind of respect for, for mm. that. Like I mean, um, like other people are very keen to put forward his perspective. Even and we had a couple of launches and the one in Cork, Tomas McCallie was very quick to remind people of you know Teddy's individual achievement that you know no one else has done this. But you're right, he hasn't dined out in it at all. Like um, like you could imagine, um, like. Personally, yeah, you could you could kind of leverage that into media careers and all the rest of it. Oh and my whatever, god! But <laughs> People have leveraged an awful yeah. lot less than that into yeah. a media career. Yeah, yeah. it was a shame that he, he didn't, you know, put forward his own perspective. But as like you said, he, he's done the book, which was very useful, published by Liam Hayes. Interestingly mm. enough, I suppose. Mm. Um, so yeah, hopefully he thinks this, I, I've tried to, to kind of crowbar his voice in there as much as possible. Mm. So hopefully he, he understands that it's a or he thinks that it's a fair reflection of his mm. perspective as well. When you like, you have a, a perspective on it uh, that that very few other people can have. How big of an achievement was the double? I think it's up there with, like, it was interesting that kind of the launch season or whatever this book being released was kind of coinciding with Dublin mm. completing their five in a row, and that's that would have to be up there as well. But I think, as a, you know. There's a lot more kind of hops of the ball, really, that have to go right, isn't mm. there? And kind of a lot more work at grassroots level and tradition and all the rest of it for this to be achieved. Um, and like just from these groups' point of view as well, um, there was an element of the stars aligning. The footballers had to, you know, break Kerry and then break Mead and achieve that, which is a back-to-back -back all earns as well, which was mm. a fierce achievement, I suppose. And then the hurlers had to come from nowhere and because they were at a low web and they were kind of an outlier when you look at it, you know, they should have been in transition really until like 92, 93, that mm. team, the kind of Brian Corcoran kind of years, but they managed to kind of pull this one out of the bag from nowhere really, like, and, um, so I think it's up there, I don't know, like, um, it doesn't necessarily, I think it's probably a reaction to, you know, the Cork arrogance, dare I say, that, you know, it doesn't necessarily get the, the credit or hasn't got the spotlight that it might otherwise have got, say, if Galway did the double in 1990 or whatever. Um, well, when Dublin eventually do yeah. do the double and do, and win like five or six of them in a row. Yeah, yeah. that's just basically a <laughs> function of a maths problem, but isn't yeah, it? Like yeah, this was yeah, more yeah, a kind yeah, of a yeah. poem. Like so, um, but yeah, I think it's up there. And hopefully people, you know, outside Cork read the book because it's a, an interesting GA story, not just, a, you know, well, because that's the thing. I mean, it's so so redolent of the times. Yeah, no, completely. I would actually back you up there uh, as a, a tip man reading it. Actually, I think if you're a Mead football fan, you should definitely read it, uh, this as well. Yeah. Also, this is one of the funniest um, 
GA books I've read in a long time. I, I laughed out loud a lot. There's some great characters in there and great one-liners that, to, that'll keep you entertained the whole way through. Um, I, I'm actually, I will finish off with, with, with not something that wasn't particularly funny, but the, the, like the intro to it is amazing. The story of Brian Keenan is astonishing. Yeah, were you aware that, that he was there? I think I was vaguely aware that he was there. I was not aware of, let's say, how he was transported there. Adrian. Yeah, yeah. I, so, like, I was chasing, like, obviously when you kind of get stuck into the, the research and you're trying to figure out who are the interesting characters and the fact mm. that he was there, I was like, that's worth the call. So I rang him, like, it was all, like I had a landline number basically for him. So I tried that every Friday or something for a year. I eventually got him in November. I was trying to figure out uh, how to, because it's without getting into the, the weeds on it, you know, starting a story where there's actually two stories. Mm. I'm like, where am I going to do this? Like, um, And then and I, and I, when I spoke to him, he articulated the kind of madness of the day better than I thought. I, I And his perspective obviously was interesting. Anyway. But yeah, to answer your question, like he saw so he came out of the out of Beirut um, and he was in a matter hospital getting treatment and they had the, that press conference that you'll remember on the Friday mm. towards media. Um, and then... If, friends of his from the north who are hurling fans kind of basically press ganged him into kind of putting pressure on yeah, the Department of Foreign Affairs I suppose to get tickets or whatever so he was more than happy to do so um, but yeah there, there was so much media CNN and all the rest of it outside the, the Matter Hospital gate that they, they had to bundle him or they decided to bundle him into the back of a as in the boot of a care that is, that is just beyond the beyonds for me like the guy had, had yeah. spent how long was he it was five years yeah, so. five years in a hole and a then hole. you get into the boot of a car to go to a match I can't believe you a match a yeah. uh, hundred yards away yeah yeah. like literally from the matter hospital to, to Croke Park yeah. whatever a hundred hundred and fifty yards and then you get out of the boot and it's just this incredible so you can imagine oh, nice. like you know well listen Adrian thank you so much the book is fantastic it's called The Double How Cork Made GA History by Adrian Russell and uh, everybody should have a look at it. Uh, thank you to you. Thank you to you, Pat. Uh, thank you to Jerry and Gav, who we had on earlier talking rugby. Thank you to Declan behind the glass. Uh, and uh, thank you to everybody. This was our hundredth episode. We'll see you all for oh, the next one. Let's promise them one oh, more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah let's enough. not promise another hundred. Anyway, take it easy, folks. We'll see you Thursday. Added time is supported by Fitbit with Amazon Alexa built in, your personalized sleep score, and a five-plus day battery life. Fitbit Versa 2 takes smartwatches to the next level.